Well, how's everyone doing this morning? It's good to be at church. Amen? Amen. Well, before we dive into this morning's message, uh, we're, we're going to talk about some highlights, but we're going to talk about those at the end of service. Uh, we're going to talk about generosity just briefly uh, before we dive into the message this morning. But you've heard it said from this pulpit, and uh, you've seen it advertised even on our walls that we believe in giving biblically. Uh, we believe in the tithe, that first 10% of our increase. We believe in giving an alms, which is above and beyond the tithe. Uh, and we believe in giving in missions. And as a church, uh, 2022 was a year where we embraced that missions giving. Uh, and we got to do some really cool things globally as a result of the faithfulness of this body. And so we're very excited about that. We're looking forward to 2023, seeing what God's going to do in and through us. Uh, as a church and our generosity, but we want to encourage and to keep it in front of you always that we truly believe uh, that we are called uh, by Scripture uh, to give to the Lord. Uh, it's something that He's commanded us to do, and it's something that He's challenged us to do, and so we want to be faithful in that. And so we're going to say a word of prayer for our offering. We have ways to give. You can text to give because it's 2023, and we have technology, which is kind of cool. Uh, you can give in person. I know we've got some envelope givers still in the building. Amen. Uh, and, and you can mail those envelopes in, or you can drop them in our envelope boxes in the back, or we have giving kiosks you can give with a credit card, or you can give online. But let's pray for the, for, for the offerings this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you, uh, God, that you are a generous God, uh, God, that you have been generous with us, uh, God, and that you encourage us uh, to see the fruit and the blessing of living generously as well. And so, Lord, you call us to be generous uh, with our finances, Lord. And so as we continue in obedience, as we continue in faithfulness, God, and as we continue in generosity, we pray that you would multiply, uh, God, that which comes in, uh, God, to the furtherance of the gospel uh, and the furtherance of your kingdom. And so, God, we just thank you for that. We praise you and your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you uh, this week. Um, last week when I was preaching, uh, I was only able to preach, I think it was a total of 21 minutes because we just had some other elements in the service. Uh, and this week I'm making up for uh, lost time uh, that, that we had last week. Uh, I told our team that was here this morning, I was able to pare down my sermon notes from 84 slides uh, to 77 slides. Um, so buckle your seatbelts. Uh, we're going to have fun this morning. Uh, the honest truth is a lot of those slides are Bible verses. It's not all notes. Um, it just sounds smarter if I say bigger numbers, right? Um, but we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, and we're going to be uh, studying verses 1 through 12 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, pull them out. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of this message is Paul's Elucidation. Uh, as we are looking at what Paul is saying to the Thessalonican church, after uh, chapter 1, he gave them some encouragement. Chapter 2, he's going to bring some clarity to some things that are going on there in the Thessalonican community. And this is what it says coming out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, picking up in, or, or chapter 2, verse 1, uh, this is what it says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or be alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter that is seeming to come from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him. Now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with the wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we get uh, the wonderful opportunity to study your word. Uh, God, we thank you that we have your, your words so readily available. Uh, God, in uh, hundreds of translations, in hardback form, leatherback form, soft form, uh, on our laptops, our iPads, our smartphones, uh, Lord, we, we have so much access to your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted. Uh, God, we would lean into the scriptures. We would lean into what your word has to say for us. God, that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be inspired by your word, and that we would be challenged as your word builds up faith within us. God, we pray that this morning as we study these 12 verses, Lord, that you would speak to us, the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these letters. God, we pray that that Holy Spirit would encourage our hearts today. God, I pray that we would walk away from this place having learned something new. Uh, God, uh, a, a nugget of truth that we can take and run with. Uh, God, I pray that we would uh, be transformed uh, in our thinking. Uh, God, and that we would leave this place different than when we came in. God, I pray that these would not be my words, but God, that your perfect word would ring true. Uh, Lord, and that we would truly uh, experience your presence as we study your word. God, we pray all these things in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. By way of some background context to this letter that Paul is writing to the church there in Thessalonica, uh, you might remember that the first, uh, the, the letter that Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul's teaching spoke of Messiah's return as the king. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 speaks about the day of the Lord and some things that happen at the end of days. Uh, we actually spent several weeks going over eschatology and the study of the end and the different schools of thought when it comes to the last things. And so Paul in this letter to the first Thessalonians, he wrote about these things. Paul holds a view that the harpazo, which is the Greek word for violently snatching up, that we have as the rapture, uh, Paul holds a view that the harpazo happens pre-wrath of God. Uh, the Thessalonians were encouraged in 1 Thessalonians to wait for the blessed hope with great patience, and Paul even commends them in this letter in the opening that they have great uh, patience of hope. Uh, 
but in the in-between time of Paul writing the first letter and Paul writing the second letter, uh, false teachers have risen up in Paul's absence, uh, and these false teachers were most likely Judaizers, those who were of the Jewish faith who were seeking to undermine the Christian teaching and uh, undermine Paul's very words. And uh, Paul tells us here in this, in this first couple verses, that there was a letter or letters that had been forged in the name of Paul uh, claiming his authorship that were circulating amongst the the Thessalonian church and that it was teaching false doctrine. And so Paul is going to oppose that and Paul is going to bring some correction to that. Uh, And and Paul, catching wind of this, uh, he uh, uh, he seeks to set the record straight on all these things. And we get this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and the gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken or troubled in mind, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it is from us, as though the day of Christ has already come. You see, the Thessalonian church was in a frenzy uh, because this letter and these false teachings that were going around were... were telling the church in Thessalonica, you missed it. Christ has already returned. You are experiencing tribulation, and you missed the kingdom. Uh, And as a result, uh, life's going to suck for you. There is no hope. And Paul uh, is frustrated about this. Uh, We can see in Paul's letters, we can see in the book of Acts, when false teaching starts going around in the name of Paul, Paul says, don't slap my name on that. That's false teaching. And he comes very aggressively against it. And so this, uh, this portion of this letter... Paul is going to address these things very clearly. Uh, Paul wants to give us clear understanding uh, that the day uh, of the Lord has not come, uh, and he has clear vision of when it is going to come and what will occur. Uh, Paul uses in in verse 1 two Greek phrases, uh, parousia and epinigog, which is the return, the gathering, uh, and, and the receiving unto oneself. And so Paul talks about when Christ returns, he is also going to gather the church to him. Uh, this echoes some of the things that Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 14, verse 3, where he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Another Greek word that we see here is paralambano, which literally means to receive to oneself, to call one to the presence of an individual. And so uh, Paul, Paul is very clear in saying that Jesus is going to return and he's going to call the believers to him. And there are some things that need to occur uh, before the day of the Lord comes and they contain these things. Uh, it could be argued that Paul sees the return of Christ and the gathering of the believers as something that occurs after tribulation. Uh, however, uh, Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians seem to be at odds with the view uh, that Christians and those who are in the church are going to go through the wrath of God. As we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, For God did not appoint us, us being the believers, us being the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 also paint a picture, as we're going to look this morning in depth at those five verses, uh, of a pre-tribulation view of the rapture of the church uh, and what that means for the believers, not only in the first century in Thessalonica, but what it means for us as believers today. 
If you're still in your Bibles in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to read now uh, verses 3 through 8 of the second chapter. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, that son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul, Paul lays out, kind of a, a course of events, a sequence of events that are going to occur before the day of the Lord, the glorious return of Jesus when he comes to set all things right, when he destroys the rebellion of, of wickedness. Jesus talks about, or, or Paul talks about Jesus killing this, this man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. Uh, Paul sets uh, a sequence of events, three points, three signs or events, and they lead to potentially three questions that we're going to look at this morning. And the three things that Paul lays out in verses three through eight is there's a thing that is called the apostasy, or the Greek word, the apostasia. Uh, he talks about the man of lawlessness, uh, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Uh, and then the third thing he talks about is the restrainer. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend the next couple minutes uh, looking at what is the apostasy, what is the man of lawlessness, and what is the restrainer. Uh, we're we're, we're going to look at their importance. We're going to look at their New Testament and Old Testament uh, types and pictures. Uh, and we're going to digest what Paul has to say to the church in Thessalonica. And then we're going to look at what that means to us as well. Uh, and so the first thing that we want to look at is we want to look at the man of lawlessness. Uh, because this is actually the easiest one for us to deduce who the man of lawlessness is, uh, what his purpose is, what he does. Uh, and, and of these three points and questions, it's the one that there's pretty much universal uh, agreement among scholars and theologians who this is. The other two, uh, there's some debate, there's some argument, and there are very smart people uh, who come and land on different points. Uh, and I will present all of those this morning uh, and potentially uh, point you where I land. Uh, but I think it's going to make sense as we go through all of this. But first and foremost, the man of lawlessness is clearly the Antichrist. Uh, he is the, the beast of revelation. He is the one who is going to oppose the church uh, and who is going to oppose God uh, and is going to uh, lead humanity in rebellion against God. Um, some other ideas that exist within uh, theological circles, uh, there are those that believe the man of lawlessness uh, is Nero, uh, who was an emperor uh, in Rome during the 60s AD. 
Uh, Nero was a pretty bad guy. If you've heard of Nero or if you know any of the things that Nero did, Nero was quite wicked. He persecuted the church greatly. Uh, it is said within uh, Roman historical documents and church, church history documents that Nero was the kind of guy who hated Christians so much that he would impale them on, on pikes. He would dip them in oil uh, and he would light them on fire and he would set these pillars up all throughout his gardens and he would say, look, the Christians are truly the light of the world as he would use their burning bodies to light uh, his, his gardens. Like Nero was not a good guy. Uh, he hated Christians, uh, and he seemed to hate a lot of other groups, um, but the early church very much faced opposition from Nero, and there are those that believe Paul is specifically referring to Nero here as the man of lawlessness who is in rebellion against the things of the Lord. Um, we really don't think it's Nero. Uh, I say we, and, and, and the majority of theologians do not believe it is Nero, as Nero died, uh, and uh, the church was still going through all these kind of things, uh, and N Nero doesn't uh, fit all of the details that are given to the Antichrist throughout Scripture. Others would believe that uh, the, the man of lawlessness refers to the body of Jews that were there in Thessalonica who were opposing Paul and who were spreading this letter uh, in his name, uh, but that idea doesn't have much weight behind it uh, in the scholarship. Uh, others would say that uh, the man of lawlessness just refers to the many antichrists that have come and that are coming and that will come in the future, as we see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, there are many antichrists already among you, the spirit of antichrist. It is an anti-God, anti-Jesus uh, uh, sort of movement within humanity. Um, but it, what is pretty clear from the text and, and what most uh, scholars would believe is that the man of lawlessness is none other than the prince who causes desolation uh, that is referenced in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 refer to a time uh, after uh, Messiah is revealed in a uh, Messiah will be revealed, but then will be taken away. And that in that intermediate time before Messiah returns, there is a prince that will rise up that will cause the abomination of desolation in the temple. Uh, and there will be some uh, wicked things that occur. And the Jews, at the time of receiving Daniel's words, they, they began to look for the signs. Who is this uh, man who will cause the abomination of desolation? Who is this pr uh, prince? who seeks to oppose Yahweh. Uh, and so what the Jews and what the early church uh, were able to deduce is that there were some patterns and pictures throughout Jewish history. The first being uh, about 200 years after Daniel writes this, uh, there is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the, the king of the Seleucid Empire, and he invades uh, Israel, uh, and he fights against the, the priesthood, uh, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of Yahweh, which to the Jews, that is an unclean animal. This is something that defiled the temple. It is known as the abomination of desolation. And as a result of this, we get something called the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, and there's a holiday that's celebrated by Jews to this day called Hanukkah. As a result of this whole story, you can read about it in First and Second Maccabees, uh, which are some very interesting historical books. Uh, but this event that occurred where 
a pig was sacrificed on the altar of the temple. Uh, it caused the Jews to go into a revolt and to fight for orthodoxy and to fight for truth. Uh, and, the, and this event occurs again in the first century during the Jewish wars in 70 AD when Titus and Vespasian, uh, the Roman generals uh, and future Roman emperors, uh, when they sacrifice a pig to Zeus there in the Jewish temple right before they burn it to the ground and destroy it. Uh, and that site still lays bare today where the temple was. Um, and the Jews saw that there was a pattern, that there was going to be one who would rise up in different generations, who was going to oppose Yahweh, who was going to defile his temple. And that idea transfers on into the early church as even Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24. And so the early church was looking at this pattern and they were looking to a future event when there would be a restored temple and there was going to be someone who would set themselves up in the temple as God. And Paul tells us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that that is the man of lawlessness. So, first point, the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. He is a future uh, character who is going to do something in the future. Could be the distant future. Uh, I believe it's probably more likely to be the near future. Uh, who He is going to oppose God and is going to lead many astray. But the day of the Lord cannot come until he is revealed. But there are two other things that, that must happen alongside of this. So the second thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the apostasy or the Greek word apostasia. What is the apostasy? Um, for those of us who are familiar with the phrase apostasy, we often just think uh, it is a departure from uh, orthodox teaching. It's a departure from, from the truth of Scripture, and it is going off uh, with false doctrine. Uh, and, and, and we're going to discuss that idea of apostasy in just a few moments, uh, but it should be noted that there are other views of what the apostasy refers to here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The first one that we want to talk about this morning is uh, there are those who believe that the Greek word apostasia is actually a reference to the rapture, that it is a reference to a physical departure as opposed to a doctrinal departure. Uh, and, and they will point to the fact that the word apostasia is only used twice in the New Testament. The first time it is used, it is used in the book of Acts, and it is very clear in the book of Acts it is referring to a doctrinal departure, but its root word uh, is used 15 times in the New Testament, and of the 15 times, 13 of those times, it refers to a physical departure, not an intellectual departure. And so the argument could be made, uh, and it is made by those who, who are strong in the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the rapture, that apostasy is better translated as a removal of the church, a physical departure of the church where the church is no longer in view. And so to those who are familiar with the idea of the rapture, uh, it makes sense that the apostasy would happen first. If the apostasy refers to the rapture, the rapture would happen first, and then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, would be revealed. Uh, it is an idea, and it, it, it's an interpretation of apostasy that's been floating around uh, for the last couple hundred years. It's still a minority view. Uh, I think it has some weight. I, I, I think it's uh, probably more optimistic thinking uh, 
Um, there, there are some Old Testament prophecies that refer to the end times and that there will be end times revival. Uh, and if we take the traditional view of apostasy, that at the end there is going to be a great falling away, uh, it seems to potentially be at, at odds with this idea of a great end times revival. Um, and so I want to have the mindset that there's going to be an end times revival. Uh, and so there's a part of me that wants apostasia here in 2 Thessalonians to refer to the rapture. Um, but I think as we're going to look at the Greek and the way it's used, uh, I think that idea uh, is, is optimistic, um, but maybe not tangible. Uh, the other view for uh, apostasia and what it means, uh, there are some that would mean uh, or, or, or would think that it means uh, a, a physical rebellion towards the Roman government. This is a view that takes uh, a much less spiritual approach to the scriptures and says, hey, there are those uh, in the end times, in the end times for, for, for this view of camp is uh, the first century AD, uh, and that the church and that the Jews, they were going to rebel against the Roman government, and that they were going to withdraw themselves from the Roman government, and then these things uh, could occur. Uh, this is very much the minority, and it is a view uh, that, that I don't give really any grain of salt. Uh, the next one is that the apostasy is linked directly to the man of lawlessness himself, and that the man of lawlessness and the apostasy are one and the same, that the apostasy is the rebel setting himself up as God. This is the great apostasy that occurs. And so those who take this view uh, link the man of lawlessness and apostasy as an inseparable item. The apostasy is just what describes the man of lawlessness. And again, this is a, a view that has uh, some traction behind it, um, but the view that, that I land on uh, and that I think it would be important for us to, to, to land on as well uh, is that this is truly a doctrinal departure. It, it, it is a fall from orthodoxy. It is a fall from what is truth. Uh, now, I have to be careful how I say this uh, because uh, traditionally those who take this view um, put on their heresy hunter goggles uh, and they start going around every corner of the church trying to find false doctrine so that they can prove the end is upon us. Uh, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I think it's important for us to know what truth is so that when we hear something that's false, we automatically know it's false. We don't have to go look for it. Uh, if we saturate ourselves in truth, uh, then uh, when we hear falsities, we know to turn away from those things and to, to hang on to what is true. Uh, I think the, the strongest argument for it being a, doc, uh, a doctrinal fall comes from Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 14. Uh, and, and if we extend that to 10 through 16, uh, I think you're going to see what I'm referring to here. Uh, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, it will be increased, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I think it's 
pretty telling that Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 in the Mount Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about the end of days, he links a false teaching that is arising and the abomination of desolation. He links those two things in conjunction with one another. And it's something very clearly that Paul is picking up on here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there will be a falling away doctrinally and that there will be the revealing of the man of lawlessness And so what does this mean to the church there in Thessalonica? Well, these two things hadn't occurred yet. And so Paul was telling them, hey, there hasn't been a falling away. There hasn't been this great exodus from orthodoxy. And there hasn't been the man of lawlessness setting himself up in the temple yet. So you don't have to worry. The day of the Lord has not come yet. So that was encouraging to the church in Thessalonica. And what does it mean for you and I today? Well, The beauty is the truth is still being proclaimed. There hasn't been a mass exodus from orthodoxy yet. Uh, And we're going to continue to preach the truth and we're going to continue to preach the gospel. And as long as we do that, we hope to stave off mass exodus from orthodoxy. We want to see truth being taught and false doctrine being suppressed. Uh, and, And it is clear that that apostasy has not yet occurred and in conjunction with With that, the man of lawlessness has not set himself up yet. And so the day of the Lord is not yet upon us as well. The third thing that we want to look at this morning, and this is the one that is probably going to take the most time, uh, and before this week when I was studying for it, I would have said this was the one that was the easiest to identify. Um, But in my study this week, and and as Pastor Dave and Pastor Kyle and Pastor Ed and I, uh, we we had the opportunity to all be in the same car uh, driving down to Salem for a pastor's conference. We spent that entire ride just talking about the text and looking at all the different resources we'd been studying. And it really brought some things to the surface uh, that were very eye-opening to me. Uh, they, they, they solidified some views that I held, um, but they were super, super encouraging. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at in these next few moments as we look at what the, uh, what the restrainer is, who the restrainer is, uh, uh, that Paul refers to here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. It should be pointed out, uh, in verse 6, Paul says, that which restrains... And then he follows it in verse 7 to say, he who restrains. Uh, And so those who uh, look at the text in the Greek, uh, they notice a difference here. And they say, there's a problem. Who who is Paul referring to? What is Paul referring to? Is it a what or is it a who? Uh, The Greek words uh, katakon and ho-katakon are used here. Uh, One is a neutered word and one is a masculine word. One is an inanimate object and one is a personal uh, identification. And Paul uses them interchangeably about this word, uh, the restrainer. So the question could be asked, uh, who is the restrainer? What is the restrainer? Uh, Or who slash what is the restrainer? Uh, And that's what we're going to look at uh, in these next few moments. Uh, Some commentaries, more older commentaries, uh, would refer to the restrainer as the Roman Empire, uh, that the Roman Empire was restraining the church from doing what it was supposed to or was potentially restraining uh, the man of lawlessness from being raised up. There were those who believed that the Roman Empire was actually protecting the church uh, even amidst persecuting them. They were standing as a barrier as some other entity coming in uh, who was going to destroy all things. 
This is a minority view uh, that has really fallen out of circulation um, more recently. Uh, and, and I think a um, more popular view of who the restrainer is or what the restrainer is, uh, is the restrainer uh, is the church and that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit within the church. So it is the what, the church, and the who, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this ties in with the idea that uh, the end won't come until the church is removed. And, and, and this would also point towards and give validity to Paul's argument that the rapture occurs before the end times tribulation. The church will be removed because currently the church is what is restraining the man of lawlessness and the apostasy from occurring. Um, and those were the things that I thought it very clearly pointed to. Uh, but then uh, I was put onto an article uh, that was written in the 70s, uh, and it, its name was God's Plan and God's Power, Isaiah 66 and the Restraining Factors of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 uh, by Dr. Roger D. Aus. Uh, and what this article does, uh, it's, uh, it's brilliant, um, and it... it pulls some things out of the text of 2 Thessalonians uh, and connects them to Isaiah 66 in a very interesting, but once you see it, you can't unsee it kind of way. Uh, and and it, it paints the picture that the restrainer, uh, yes, it might be the church, yes, it might be the Holy Spirit, but it might actually be bigger than that. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, in these next few moments. Uh, what, what this article does is it, it takes a look at uh, the, the motifs and, and the theme of Isaiah 66. It's a poem uh, that is being written about uh, those who oppose Yahweh, those who are opposing the rebuilding of the temple, those who are teaching that hope is lost, that the Jews will be forever dispersed, and that God can never set up his kingdom again. Uh, and then Isaiah is, is positing that, no, those are actually false teachers and that Messiah will reestablish his kingdom. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, and Isaiah 66 uh, uh, have clear connections. Uh, if we were to go back one chapter to Isaiah or, or, or to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see Paul talk about uh, how Jesus is going to come in great power, with great authority, uh, with hosts of angels, uh, in, in, in fiery uh, uh, presentation, and he's going to consume uh, what is wicked. Uh, and these are the exact words that are used in Isaiah 66. And so what Aus is going to do in this article is he's going to give us four main arguments for who the restrainer is and why Isaiah 66 should be in view when we look at who the restrainer is. And the first point is he says we must view first, uh, uh, Second Thessalonians within context of, of uh, what it is being written about, who it is being written to. And I notice in my notes, I put 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 up on the screen so we can skip those because it's supposed to be 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, flip back one page uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 for us real quick. This is what it says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who do not know God 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes in that day, which is the day of the Lord, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed." Paul uses uh, this, this fiery imagery of Jesus' return, and it's the very words that Paul, uh, or, or that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15, where he says, For look, the Lord comes with great fire, his chariots like a, war, uh, a windstorm, to reveal his raging anger, his battle cry, and his flaming arrows. Isaiah is painting the picture of Yahweh coming to uh, consume the rebellion there in Isaiah's time. And Paul very clearly is using the same kind of language. And, and theologians have noticed that Paul is most likely uh, using Isaiah 66 as a source for his argument against the false teachers there in Thessalonica. House's second point uh, is the opposition. Uh, those that oppose Yahweh, uh, uh, the rebels or the rebel of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 6, it is the same Greek word in the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the word opposition that is used there in Isaiah chapter 66 is the exact same word that Paul uses for opposition here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in reference to the man of lawlessness as he is going to oppose Yahweh. Uh, to oust, Paul is painting the Thessalonian Jews as the rebels from Isaiah 66. Uh, and, and in the technical breakdown of the Greek, it's, it's uh, pretty clear um, because there are other words for opposition that could be used uh, and, and it might actually make more sense to be used. Uh, but Paul specifically is using the word for opposition that is used in Isaiah 66. And so uh, there, there's some strong connection there. The third point that Aus makes is, is another connection between the Greek that Paul uses there in 2 Thessalonians and the Greek that is used in the Septuagint of Isaiah 66 in reference to the temple. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians, the Greek word is neon, uh, and the Greek word that is used in the Septuagint of Isaiah 66 is naos, which are, come from the same root of, of the temple. And what uh, Aus points out is when Paul is referring to the man of lawlessness setting himself up in the temple, this is very uh, clear and, and has uh, symbolism uh, from Isaiah chapter 66, where it speaks of the rebels who seek to oppose uh, the, the plan of Yahweh by spreading the word that the temple will never be rebuilt, that Zion is lost, that Messiah won't show up at all. And uh, asks the question, does this sound familiar? Because Second Thessalonians is all about the word being spread, that the church has missed Jesus' return, that the kingdom is no longer at hand. And so there is a strong connection between Isaiah 66 and Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, here in Aus's view. The fourth point that he brings up uh, is that in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, uh, we get this picture of the woman who is in labor, and, and from her labor, Zion is reborn. Uh, and, and there are those who take a look at Isaiah 66, and it's a picture of the Messiah being born, uh, something that's referenced again in Revelation chapter 12, and that we see in the Gospels, the birth of Jesus. Uh, there's a messianic motif, and that Messiah's arrival would bring or, or establish the kingdom. 
Isaiah's messianic kingdom uh, is different than some of the messianic kingdoms that we see in other prophecies where it talks about all of Israel being brought back together. Isaiah and Isaiah 66, he refers to the messianic kingdom not just including the Jews, but including the Gentiles as well. Uh, and I think this is key, and, and Aus points this out, that Paul's very mission, like the very reason he did what he did, was to go unto the ends of the earth because Paul saw that the fulfillment of the gospel was that it would go first to the Jew and then to the Greek and to the ends of the earth. What, what Paul was doing was Paul was looking at Deuteronomy chapter 32 where we see that Yahweh had had Israel as his inheritance but that he had disinherited all of the other nations but that at a time in the future, Messiah would reconstitute the nations back to Yahweh. And we see that take place there at Pentecost. All those regions and nations that are mentioned there in Acts chapter 2 can be traced directly back to Genesis chapter 10, where we have the table of nations right after the Tower of Babel. So at Babel, the nations are dispersed and disinherited from Yahweh. But at Pentecost, the gospel is now being made known to all those nations. And so Paul had the mission to go forth to bring the gospel to all nations so that then the end would come. Uh, Aus points out that in Isaiah 66, verses 18 through 21, there is a description of how the Lord will come and will reclaim the nations as the thing that uh, finalizes uh, his, his kingdom here on earth. And so when we talk about the restrainer, uh, who, what, or is it both? I, I think there's a threefold restrainer uh, that, that we can pull from the text. Um, we mentioned the church and we mentioned the Holy Spirit, but I think the restrainer, uh, when, when we connect it to Isaiah chapter 66, uh, to, to me personally, I, I really believe the restrainer is referring to the gospel that is going to the ends of the earth. And that the gospel going forth, that gospel message, is what is currently restraining the Antichrist from establishing uh, his kingdom and from apostasy for uh taking place. As, as we continue to bring the gospel with us, uh, this restrains. Uh, but that could just be the, the, the what, who is doing this. And I believe wholeheartedly uh, that the Holy Spirit is the one who is making this possible. The Holy Spirit is he who is making the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth possible. And this is where it ties in the, the third bit, that the church is the one who is bearing that message, the church filled with the gospel, bringing the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the restrainer is more than just the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, it's the message that we bring with us. Uh, and, and so I think the encouragement to the church there in Thessalonica was, hey, you haven't missed the end yet. You haven't, you haven't missed the day of the Lord. He is still uh, uh, tarrying. There is still time to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't lose hope. And I think that same thing is for us today. Uh, we're still here, and by us still being here means the gospel has not gone all the way to the ends of the earth yet. Uh, there's a reason why we as a church, we are so passionate about missions, uh, because there are still millions of people across the globe who have never heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's something that we have. Uh, it's something that we hold within us. Uh, it's, it's awesome, uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the very thing that is restraining the greatest evil that is going to be poured out on this earth. 
Uh, and so we have a purpose and a mission uh, as the church. Matthew chapter 28, you, you hear us say it every week. Go therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are those who are bringing the mission uh, to fruition. We, we, we get to be a part of the reconstituting of the nation's back to Yahweh. Jesus started the plan. Jesus, his death and resurrection and uh, his ascension and what occurred at Pentecost, it kick-started the mission, but we are still on that mission today, uh, and we are to be on that mission uh, as long as we can, as long as we still have breath in our lungs. And so uh, hopefully you're encouraged. I know that was a, a, a lot of information, um, but if you take one thing from all of this, uh, the end is not on us yet, because we're still here and we have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Uh, so use time wisely. Let's preach the gospel everywhere we go. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for, for the opportunity that we get to come and to study your word. Uh, God, I pray that this morning uh, we would be encouraged uh, by your word. Uh, God, we would be encouraged by the words of Paul and what uh, he, he wrote to the church there in Thessalonica, that uh, the end is not yet. Uh, and there are some things to watch for. So keep your eyes uh, focused uh, and keep your mission focused to share the gospel everywhere you go. Uh, God, I pray that, that, that we would take heart uh, the same way the Thessalonican church took heart and that we would uh, share the gospel, that we would use every opportunity we have uh, at, our, at our fingertips to share the gospel, to share the love of Jesus uh, to a world that desperately needs it. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for this time together. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your word would richly uh, nourish our hearts and that we would go from this place uh, impacted uh, by the things that we've heard. And so, God, we thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.